Hello, and welcome to the monthly podcast of the Vestibular Special Interest Group of the Neurology Section of the American Physical Therapy Association. Today's topic is aging and vestibular disorders. I am Wendy Creekles. I'm a physical therapist and a neurologic clinical specialist on faculty at the University of Colorado in Denver. And I have two speakers with me today, Wendy Wood and Brady Wetton, who are both um, doctors of physical therapy, and they are both board-certified geriatric clinical specialists. Thank you both so much for being here today. And Wendy, if you could start with a brief introduction of yourself and where you work. Great. Yes, thank you. Uh, I have been working in the area of balance and vestibular rehabilitation for about the last 10 years now, probably about 75% with uh, elderly. In 2012, it was a little different. I worked with uh, Marines and Navy, so I was working with a very highly athletic population, but the majority of my career has been with um, the elderly. I would say about 20% of the time I work at a university, West Coast University, teaching and doing teaching in the area of balance and vestibular rehabilitation. And the other part of the time, I am a clinician currently working in home health with elderly that are living on their own independently. Uh, but I've worked in all settings um, in, in this area, and it's an area that I'm extremely passionate about, and I think it's a lot of fun, actually. I think you have a, a, a large impact on people's lives. Great. Agreed. Thank you. thank you so much, Wendy. And Brady? Yes, thank you for having me. Um, my name is Brady, and I work in an outpatient neurologic and geriatric uh, physical therapy clinic. We, we do a lot of, of elderly individuals, and my primary area of emphasis and really my primary area of passion is the vestibular system, working with individuals who are dizzy and and also working with individuals who are falling, having balance concerns. Um, I have a lot of fun doing this, and I really enjoy the ability to, to be able to challenge these individuals. Um, I also do some, some presentations locally and nationally, looking at balance and falls and also some of the vestibular system. So it's a, it's a great privilege for me to be able to be here today. Great. Thank you so much. Um, Wendy, we'll start with you. If you could just give us a brief overview of normal aging and its effects on the vestibular system and balance overall. Okay. Uh, I believe we, we see a great variety. I think all of us working with patients, we see the active elderly and the more inactive sedentary elderly. So, uh, you know, sometimes age is a number, but in the normal aging process, I, there have been some documented changes that in the vestibular system, there's loss of the hair cells. Overall, looking at balance, we see the somatosensory system affected sometimes, uh, more of a higher incidence of peripheral neuropathy. Uh, and uh, the visual system, there are changes as well. So those things can impact the system. We can consider some of those modifiable risk factors, you know, the visual system, for instance, someone can have glasses or cataract surgery. Um, looking at the motor system, slower reaction time at, with decreased amounts of the fast twitch fibers. But on the other side, I think we can, 
we, we see a lot of people that are very active in their uh, elderly life, and uh, they can have a very productive life. And some, some of these things, elderly that I meet at times, they are oftentimes told that their dizziness is a part of normal age. That is not necessarily so. Um, BPPV, for instance, is, is something that we see more prevalent in the elderly population, but it's not something that we con would consider it's normal to be there. So we can have an impact on changing these things and educating the elderly. Great. I'm glad you bring that up because um, I've heard similar things with balance and falls. Oh, you're getting older. You can expect that you're going to have a fall. And I think as physical therapists, we really have a role to dispel that myth. <laughs> um, yeah. Brady, do yeah. you have anything to add around normal aging and, and working with the elderly? Yes, I would agree completely with Wendy um, in that it is not normal for uh, elderly individuals to experience dizziness and, and so forth. And there are things that can be done, but it also, as she mentioned, there are things that that need to be looked at and that do change with age. One of those um, that was not mentioned was um, there has been shown to be some degenerative changes in the in the utricle and the saccule and the otoconia, and that may be one of the explanations for the increased prevalence of BPPV. Uh, and Wendy also mentioned the visual acuity, and I would add that a lot of times with these individuals there is increased difficulty in accommodating to the um, to some of these changes and to some of these compensations that we are trying to elicit. Um, but overall, I do believe strongly that we can make a positive impact in the elderly and that we can, uh, we can help them and that they should not accept that this is normal for them. Right, correct, agreed. So, Brady, we'll start with you regarding examination. What are some of the current best tools that you use for assessing vestibular imbalance function in older adults in the physical therapy setting? Yeah, sure. So, one of the, obviously, this is going to depend a lot on the history, on what their, you know, their complaints are, and so forth. That's going to guide a lot of my evaluation tools. What specific tests I'm going to look at. Uh, the big ones that I'm going to really try to hit on are going to be looking at the function of each of the ears and that is one of the main ways that we can look at that is the through the head thrust test or the head impulse test. Also looking at dynamic visual acuity and comparing that to their static visual acuity, looking to see how they tolerate that head motion while moving their head and trying to focus on a static object there. Um, Positional testing a lot of times is going to be challenging for these. We have the motion sensitivity quotient, which I find to be very useful in in, in looking at which positions are tolerated or not tolerated by these individuals. And then certainly, as with all individuals, but especially trick patients, looking at specific balance tests. I do a lot with the modified CAT-SIB, UTSIB test. Um, looking at gait and balance measures, looking at gait speed. There's been a lot in the geriatric, geriatric population for gait speed, and looking at that in regards to their to the vestibular system. And then the last thing that I would like to add would be 
looking at the looking at their subjective ratings on how it's affecting them subjectively. For example, there's the activity specific balance confidence scale, looking at their fear of falling. Uh, there's the dizziness handicap inventory, which looks at their how the dizziness is impacting their life, and really giving them something to see how it's affecting their participation in daily living. And these are nice forms that they can do prior to actually being seen. It's, it's an easy thing to add on, and I think it's being missed a lot. Mm -hmm. Now, when you mention fear of falling, do you use something like the falls efficacy scale, or do, what measure do you have for fear of falling, or you just glean that from the ABC? Or Yes, yes, the falls efficacy scale is well. It has been found to be useful. Um, a lot of times I will just glean that from the ABC. Okay. They're looking at their balance, confidence, and so forth. Great, great. And Wendy, would you add any other examination tools that you seem to find yourself coming back to very frequently that's um, in addition to, to Brady's list? Um, I, I'm using a lot of tools that Brady's using. Uh, I thought he covered that real well. Um, I would say um, one thing that I do look at also is um, their intake sheet and taking a look at what some of the other risk factors they may have, like for instance, uh, medications. What, how many medications are they on? What kind of medications? Knowing um, polypharmacy can cause an increased risk for falls. Have they had any falls before? Another thing that I generally leave with them to take home to fill out and bring on the next visit and we can discuss is a, a home assessment so we can look at, well, are there any external risk factors that may be at the, at the home? Um, and kind of adding that all together right away, of course, I know if they have a decrease, if they have a prior history of falls, um, that's, you know, certainly a, a big red flag for me. Uh, like Brady, I really like to use the Disney's Handicapped Inventory and the ABC scale, the activities a specific balance confidence scale to give me an idea of um, there is there a fear of falling, um, and I think research has shown that's a much better tool to use than simply asking the person, "Are you afraid of falling?" We could still do that, but I think the ABC scale is really nice in that it does give us a more objective look at that. Uh, like Brady, I'm using the CTSIB as well. What I like to do is kind of systematically looking at, well, what is the integrity of their sensory system? So how is that, how's the static visual acuity? How is the dynamic visual acuity? I do find a, a lot of the elderly that really aren't aware that because their vision has been progressively going down, they, they're not really aware that that's a factor in their balance. So, you know, someone may walk in and their vision is, um, you know, very impacted, like they have 80-20, and they don't really realize that that, that is something that's important because it's been a slow loss. Um, but taking that information and then doing the CTSIB really gives me a chance to see, uh, okay, uh, well, what is the integrity of their system but now how are they utilizing it? Are they overly favoring one system over another? Are they becoming more visually dependent? Which is another thing I think we see in the elderly. 
uh, like Brady, I'm choosing a, ga a gait test um, and a balance test as well. And the tests that I choose, I'm really kind of gauging on what is their activity level. Um, when I worked at the Naval Hospital, I used the, um, the dynamic gait index less, and I, I used the functional gait assessment more because that was a higher level assessment. However, I've used that with people in their 80s, too, depending mm -hmm. on their activity, um, you know, their status. Mm -hmm. um, but I used a lot of the similar tests as Brady. I thought you covered that real well. Great. I think um, one question that came to my mind, Wendy, when you were talking is you mentioned a home assessment, and I think that's so key uh, in the clinic where I work. We have on our intake form, um, do you have a gate? device and how many stairs do you have and that's kind of where the intake form yeah. ends <laughs> and I find that my history taking my questioning gives me a better picture but when you mentioned a home assessment that they bring back the next time that sounds like a great idea are you using something standard or did you just develop certain common questions um, in more in depth that help you you know I am using a standard form and it's I cannot tell you offhand what that is. It's from a clinic, a balance and vestibular clinic I worked at. Uh, and that particular clinic or that particular form has a score, um, looks at a score that, you know, might place you in a category of, you know, increased risk. It's in general kind of a yes, no, like, for instance, the first question are your are your steps in good repair if you have stairs? So there's mm -hmm. many things that are obvious, and then there are some things like, do you have grab bars in your shower? And if I took that questionnaire, that would be a no. Um, right. I don't feel that I need grab bars in my shower at this time. So there's, I think on a particular scale, um, there's seven. You know, no's are okay. Um, so it's um, some things, like I said, are very obvious, um, but I think um, some bring to light to people that there may be things in their home that might place them at more risk, like, for instance, um, you know, throw rugs, that kind of thing uh, that might be, or clutter, you know, those kind of things might actually be um, placing them at more risk. Right, right, excellent. Okay. Um, Brady, we'll go back to you moving on toward evaluation. Um, once you've completed your examination and your history um, for older individuals with vestibular or balance problems, um, what are some typical findings? Do you find um, strains of perhaps they're using one um, sensory system more than another? Um, do you find certain motor strategies that relate to risk of falling? Or, you know, just kind of what are some of your typical findings, themes, I guess? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so in regards to the sensory system, I would say most, if not all, of, of these individuals are going to have a high increased uh, visual dependence looking at their, so if you if you do any any of the testing, for example, from the CTSIB testing, um, a lot of times I'm gonna see, once we have them do anything with their eyes closed, their balance is gonna be, be um, decreased significantly. Uh, so that's, that's one thing, and, I'll, and they also have a lot of somatosensory dependence as well, and that goes back to the what we talked about at the beginning with the normal aging process, looking at the 
decrease in the number of hair cells and vestibular neurons that Wendy had mentioned. Um, what I find is the brain just likes to basically more or less ignore some of those vestibular inputs and focus more on the vestibular and to, to a lesser extent the somatosensory inputs. Um, so that's one common finding that I would see. Certainly they are, I, I see a lot higher fear of falling among these individuals. Their balance reactions are not as quick. So their ability to, once they start to lose their balance, to be able to adjust quickly and to be able to get that quick step out, whether it be forwards or sideways or, sideways or backwards. Um, so those are going to be some areas. Uh, another thing that is, is commonly seen among elderly individuals would be difficulty with smooth pursuits, you know, just that ability to follow an object with their eyes there. Uh, so remembering that as we're doing our evaluation. Um, but overall, just their their overall functional level, just taking a, a good look at that when you're doing that evaluation, um, assessing their their likelihood of being active, of participating in the community, and, and seeing how that all comes together, I think is, is the biggest tool, the biggest key that we can add to what we do to help them to achieve a greater quality of life. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Like we started off with, you know, each individual is going to be different. There are going to be the very active, extraordinary elderly, and there's going to be elderly that are very sedentary, and we have to tailor-make our goals based on what their true goals are, patient-centered care. So that's a, a, that's a great point. Um, Wendy, do you have other typical findings you'd like to add to um Brady's list as far as um, themes that you find? Um, I, I think Brady did real well in covering a lot of those categories. Uh, definitely, I would say I do uh, see decreases in the visual system, again, that uh, people aren't seemingly aware that that would be impacting their balance. And uh, I see some um, postural abnormalities, too. Uh, like possibly linked to their visual dependence because that kind of more kyphotic posture looking down at their feet rather than looking ahead. So um, posture is a lot of times key. Uh, sometimes um, decreases in strength as well, um, sometimes in particular muscles in the, in the uh, ankle muscles and the um, dorsiflexors and plantiflexors. Um, decreased range of motion in the cervical area. And again, um, as Brady mentioned, they may have the integrity in those systems, but they tend to, they may favor one system over another. And then fear of falling as well, that we, that as we're treating them for balance, I think we're kind of indirectly working on that as well. Right, and that kind of leads me to my next question, and we'll start with you, Wendy, this time, is um, how does physical therapy intervention help reduce someone's fear of falling in this population where the fear is usually escalated and the stakes of falling are much higher in this population? So what do we do as physical therapists that help this as we incorporate it into our interventions? Great. I think uh, one thing that we do in, indirectly as we're working with people 
helping them to develop better strategies to recover balance. Um, initially, maybe working on those in a voluntary way, and then as we're progressing, we're going to add in more things where we're kind of giving that person more of an unexpected, uh, say, a perturbation where they have to recover balance. So initially, I'm kind of working on those voluntary things. And indirectly, as we're doing that, and the person is becoming more adept at their strategies and gait and balance, that we're developing a greater sense of confidence that they're able to do certain certain things. And then we can actually see that when we repeat the test, the ABC scale, and we go back and look at their confidence in those measures. Um, but I think we have to begin with the voluntary building the confidence level, although when we're assessing, we're also assessing their ability to respond to unexpected losses of balance. Mm-hmm. Great. And, and Brady, do you have any other um, additions to that around reducing fear of falling during our PT intervention? Uh, yes, absolutely. I, I agree completely with Wendy. I think she covered that very well as far as um, retraining and helping them to see. I think the biggest thing we can do is, is help to educate them on their improvements and as Wendy mentioned, you, you know, we have some, some nice measures such as the ABC and so forth, the dizziness handicap inventory, but to actually take them back to day one, say, okay, remember on day one you scored this on the ABC scale, today your score is this, um, and then also taking that a step further, looking at some of the gait measures, whatever we chose to use, you know, your gait speed, day one, you were walking at this speed, now you're walking this much faster, letting them see the objective changes. Sometimes they're not going to notice that they're walking faster or that they're not as unsteady as they turn their head with the dynamic gait index and so forth. Uh, and lastly, the thing that I, that I would say is one of the things I really like to, to do with my patients and educate them on is this idea of overtraining their, their, their balance system. So I put them in situations that are harder than anything they're going to face in their day-to-day -day life, typically. Um, I make sure they're safe, whether it be with a harness system or with me right next to them or whatever, that they know that there's no way they're going to hurt themselves. But as we overtrain them and put them in harder situations and they see some level of success, it's, it's critical that they have success as they're doing these challenging things. Mm -hmm. um, and it, but then as they see success in these challenging things, then their, you know, normal day-to-day -day activities that require balance or that require walking or so forth um, is going to be that much more automatic and they'll be that much more comfortable in it because they've done something that's even harder. Mm -hmm. um, and to really take time to explain to the patients why you're challenging so hard and to explain why the brain needs that level of intensity to be able to make those positive changes. Mm -hmm. If I could add something to yeah. that, also I would say to um, when I'm educating the person and perhaps their caregiver, letting them know, look, to get your balance better, we have to move you beyond your comfort zone a little, but we're going to do that safely. Uh, and showing them how to do the exercises at home where they lose their balance, they have something to grab onto, but for them to know that, to get it better, you have to be challenged. 
and I think Brady put that really well and in that they see that they have these successes and that they're able to do things maybe that they were more afraid of before. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Um, Brady, back to you regarding intervention when treating older adults with vestibular imbalance problems. Do you find any themes in terms of treatment frequency? You already spoke to intensity, which I think was great, both of you, that we have to push them past their comfort level, we have to challenge them, and we have to challenge them at a level where they have some measure of city. Um, but do you find that you need um, more treatment in the clinic, or do you find that you do less treatment and more home program, or do you tend to follow them for a longer period of time or a shorter burst of time? Do you have any kind of sense of that, Brady, and in, in how you tailor yes, your intervention? Yes, that's a great question, um, and certainly there's going to be some level of variance depending on the pathology and the reason mm -hmm. and the resources for the individual. But speaking in general terms, I would say that I tend to follow them a little longer. Uh, I, I, I tend to see that they have a little, their vestibular system takes a little longer to compensate and to, to learn. And there's also a higher fear of falling and so forth, so I tend to to follow them out longer. Another thing that is critical is their ability to perform home exercises at home and their, you know, their follow-through. A lot of the geriatric individuals are going to have a little bit more difficulty with that um, and taking that time to educate them on that and making sure they're getting follow-through. Um, but I would say in general, I do see more difficulty than I would with, with a younger individual on the follow-through of the exercise program, mm -hmm. and that's going to require me to, to maybe spend a little bit more time in the clinic uh, with these individuals than I, than I would with somebody else. Mm -hmm. And, Wendy, do you have anything to add on that line? I would definitely go along with Brady in, in saying that I generally tend to spend a little long with them, longer with them than the younger population, but it's always guided by how they're, what kind of progress they're making. Um, you know, I've had those individuals that just startle me in how quickly they progress, and you know, those are the ones that get, um, they get that early graduation, so to speak, that they've they've just excelled so much. Mm -hmm. But in general, I would say I'm seeing them longer, uh, but always guided by how they're doing. If I, certainly if they're scoring lower on the um, test, looking at their risk for falls, I'm uh, going to be quite a bit more concerned on making sure that they're safe and uh, we don't have a, a chance that they're going to fall. Right. right. Um, and, Wendy, if an older individual has a peripheral vestibular disorder, such as BPV, how is your treatment alike or different than a younger individual with that same diagnosis? I would say it's similar in that I want to get rid of that BPPV as quickly as I'm able to. Although in general, when I'm, when I'm seeing them that first time, I want to treat the BPPV, but I'm saving it towards the end portion of the treatment so I'm able to complete some testing that might require them to move their head in, in a way that, you know, I don't want for them to do after being treated mm -hmm. for BPPV. But usually I'm, I'm going to be with an elderly person more 
fearful that they could fall from that. So uh, whether it's a young or old person, I want to make sure that they get um, treated quickly on that first visit. We can be able to get rid of that BPPV for them. With an elderly individual, I might be a little bit more thinking in terms of, uh, although I haven't had this, um, VDI, vertebral uh, basilar in insufficiency, making sure that um, this is truly vertigo from BPPV that they're having and not other, some other central problem. Um, so but my, my uh, fear, I'm going to have a more heightened fear of them falling if this isn't treated very, very quickly. So I'm always going to save a portion of a good portion of my time in order to be able to treat that individual. But if it's a younger individual, it's the same thing. When they walk in, I want to be able to get, I know that's impacting their life, and I want to be able to treat that as quickly as I'm able. Right. And Brady, how about you? Um, BPV difference or similarities? I would agree completely with Wendy that there needs to be a high urgency to getting the BPPV resolved as quickly as possible. Um, one of the things I might add there that that would be different for an an older individual would be the you know a lot of times with these individuals you're going to run into limitations with the cervical range of motion or that severely kyphotic posture with very limited neck extension or neck rotation, which is obviously going to make it challenging to be able to, to go through the maneuvers necessary to get that resolved. Uh, so there's some level of creativity that needs to be involved. You know, a lot of times with a limited cervical extension, you can put a pillow under the thoracic spine, which will put them into enough extension. Sometimes uh, also looking at things like a Trendelenburg table, if you have that available to you. Um, but I, I would say that is one of my bigger challenges in this patient population areas. Mm -hmm. um, and, that, and that's going to be one of my big things. And then also taking a little bit more time with the education with the individual and their caregivers, their family, as far as things to be careful of, things to avoid, and, and taking the time there to, to really spend the time with them and just realizing overall that they are at higher risk for falls. Mm -hmm. um, and one other thing that I wanted to, to add to, to what Wendy said was that uh, a lot of times individuals are going to come in and sometimes they'll have that classic history that points you right towards BPPV, but a lot of times they're just going to complain of general dizziness and sometimes people might just avoid doing some of those you know, Dick's Hall Pike test and so forth, but really um, there's been research to show that it can be found in up to, I, I believe, 25% of individuals, and we really should be taking the time to do that with, with all of these individuals, uh, even if they don't have the positional vertigo component as their, their primary complaint, and being able to, to really get in there and help out with that. So you're saying we should do that um, Hall Pike testing like that quick screen probably much more regularly than we currently do? Correct, correct. And then, um, Wendy, you brought up um, vertebrobasilar insufficiency. I'm curious if either of you or both of you do a vertebral artery test or a modified vertebral artery test prior to um, assessing for BPPV in this population especially. 
I, I definitely do um, a quick screen of that while I'm treating an individual for BPPV. I'm, I'm talking to them too, uh, making sure that there's no confusion, that there's nothing that looks out of the ordinary, uh, no facial num numbness or tongue numbness, um, nothing unusual like that. Mm -hmm. And that this is, you know, truly due to BPPV. I know that prevalence is very, very low. I think it's one in like four million people, but you, it's still there, and probably a little more likely in an elderly individual compared to a younger. But you know, you still could have that in a younger. So typically, I'm doing a very quick screen. Um, some of it, you know, perhaps by the history and then just looking at their reaction as we're, you know, doing, um, we're treating their BPPV. Mm -hmm. And how about you, Brady? Yeah, I would agree with everything there. It's, it's very rare to get a positive test, but, in, you know, in the instance that it was, if it were to be positive, I think it's critical that we identify that um, before going through everything else. And... Uh, and I would agree with, with Wendy completely, everything that she mentioned as far as the screening and some of the key components that we look at there. Right, the symptoms being and the signs being very different than straightforward BPV, what we'd expect. Um, Brady, regarding individuals who are older, many of them have had uh, a stroke history. Some of them have even had some chronic ear infections, some of them have peripheral neuropathy and diabetes, you know, they come with a, a, a wide range of also comorbidities. Um, regarding more those central, people we feel have a central vestibular disorder, the true integration of their vestibular senses in an older um, individual, for instance, someone who has had maybe a small cerebellar stroke in the past, um, you know, do you, do you, again, kind of treat them similar to a younger individual, or is it different, or do you just expect more time for healing? Do you tend to rush to compensate a little bit sooner than try to remediate, or are there any general themes um, with a central problem in an elderly individual? Yes, excellent question. I would say that uh, there is certainly going to be Certainly going to take more time when there's when there's comorbidities involved, especially of the central or origin. It will take longer to to go through the process, and I educate them up front on that. Um, and there's going to be there there will be limitations as far as the amount of re complete recovery that you, you will be able to excuse me to be able to achieve there. Certainly for an individual with BPPV. You know, they're still. I would still rec expect them to achieve a full recovery from their positional vertigo, mm -hmm. um, regardless of some of the other central things that may be going on. But as far as their imbalance and some of the other functional limitations that they may be having, um, I, you know, we may be limited on, on the scope of, or the amount of recovery that we could expect. So I would I would spend a lot of time educating on you know, fall risk and um, home modifications, as Wendy mentioned earlier, and really trying to integrate as much, as many of the systems as possible into getting the individual safer and more functional and 
uh, allowing them to have a higher quality of life. Right, great. And Wendy, do you have anything to add regarding central difficulties? I would go along with uh, what Brady said. In general, oftentimes I'm spending more time with them because it's taking a, a little longer to rehabilitate. Um, the only thing I would add is for individuals who have their cerebellum heavily impacted from, say, a stroke, I might need to kind of rethink, are we going to have to do more compensation, substituting for use of the vestibular system, uh, because that cerebellum is so important to recovery of the vestibular system. So I kind of like the way I, what analogy I like to use is that for an individual with the cerebellum that's heavily impacted, it's kind of like that's the car repair shop. And if the vestibular system is the car and the car is broken or having trouble, but the car repair shop is also broken or having trouble, then the likelihood of that repair is definitely going to be more diminished. But again, it depends on how much and where that cerebellar system has been impacted. Uh, there are certain individuals that are just not going to have recovery of that vestibular system, and we're going to have to really get them to use the other systems. I like to kind of look at it like a pie, the visual system, the somatosensory, and the vestibular, and if that vestibular pie piece we know is not going to come back, let's try and make the visual and somatosensory pies a little bit larger to compensate for the loss of that. But if they're not impacted as much, if it's a milder stroke, maybe in areas that weren't impacting um, the recovery, the ability.